Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. (laughs) Welcome to Dark Poutine. I am Mike Brown, creator and host. With me across the table is my good friend, co-host, whatever title people want me to give him. (laughs) How about Queen of Dark Poutine? (laughs) Matthew, Queen of Dark Poutine. Hi, everybody. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. It's time to feed your fear. Oh gosh. I don't know if we're feeding fear on this show. I hope not. Occasionally. It's Occasionally. Fun to do. Yeah, it's good to feel a little fear once in a while, yeah. I guess. On January 28, 1896, in the tiny community of Bear River, Nova Scotia, a well-liked local girl, 14-year-old Annie Kempton, was brutally murdered in her home while her parents were out of town. The crime, papers said, was the worst ever seen in the province up to that point, and there was an outcry for swift justice on the heels of the slaying. Two days after the crime, Peter David Wheeler, 26, was arrested and charged with the murder. In July of that year, Wheeler was found guilty of the crime. After his trial, he made a confession that some have come to see as coerced. He was hanged less than eight months after the murder in the middle of the night as a crowd was allegedly on their way from Bear River to lynch him. You are listening to Dark Poutine, episode 211, Murder in Bear River, The Slaying of Annie Kempton. The quiet, historic little village of Bear River, Nova Scotia is about six kilometers inland from the entrance of the Bay of Fundy. The largest town close by is Digby, around 14 and a half kilometers northwest via today's highways, and Annapolis Royal, one of the oldest European settlements in Canada, is around 25 kilometers to the northeast. According to Thomas J. Brown's book in 1922, Place Names of the Province of Nova Scotia, Bear River was originally inhabited by the Mi'kmaq people. The area was called Ilsetkuk, meaning flowing by the high rocks. The indigenous people in the area had been there for thousands of years and were among the first people in Canada to have continuous contact with non-natives. The region had gone through a few name changes after Samuel de Champlain's arrival in 1604. 
Some say it gained its current moniker when famous Rogers Rangers killed a bear on its bank. But Thomas J. Brown also wrote that the name may simply be a corruption of Imbert or, or Hebert after Louis Hebert, an apothecary who accompanied Champlain to the New World. To support this, the area was referred to as Riviere Hebert in Lescarbo's book Histoire de la Nouvelle France, published in 1612. According to the Bear River Historical Society's website, quote, due to the shortage of suitable land, the downtown area was largely built on piers and stilts or on artificially created land supported by retaining walls. The high river tides, around 7 meters, combined with an abundance of easily accessible mature oak and various softwood trees made shipbuilding and lumbering two important profitable industries. Markets were readily found in the West Indies, England, and North America. In its heyday, in the 1890s, the era we're talking about, Bear River had six shipyards, six lumber mills, even though its population was only around 1,200. With affluence so generated, many shops, supply stores, and service centers were established. Many large elaborate homes were constructed along the steep hillsides on both sides of the river. Later visitors would refer to the area as the Switzerland of Nova Scotia, a name by which it is often described today. Now, I've never heard that. Mainly by those who have never been to Switzerland or Nova Scotia. Yeah. Or anywhere. I don't, I don't know. I think maybe it's like the little hills around it and that kind of thing. Everyone likes to do that. Like, like you know, Saskatoon is the Paris of the North. and The know, Paris of the Prairies. The yeah. Paris of the Prairies. And, and yeah. Winnipeg was the Chicago of Canada. What? Yeah, it was, it, was, it was called the Chicago of Canada. I have been to Chicago. Mm-hmm. I have been to Winnipeg. <laughs> the only thing that, that one has and the other has as well are people. Right. Buildings and <laughs> and some wind. And a river. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not, not exactly the same. One of the many large vessels built in Bear River was the famous brigantine De Gracia, named after the Latin phrase for by the grace of God. The ship gained its notoriety in 1872 when Captain David Reed Morehouse and his crew discovered and claimed as salvage the famed ghost ship Mary Celeste. They found it floating abandoned without any crew near the Azores. Yes, we will be doing a full episode on the Mary Celeste at some point, probably in the near future. But it was another ship from the area that brought Peter David Wheeler to Nova Scotia. Wheeler had been born in 1869 in Port Louis on the small tropical island of Mauritius, 2,000 kilometers off the southeast coast of Africa. According to MyMauritius.Travel, quote, For centuries, the island of Mauritius has seen the successive settlement of the Dutch, the French, the English, the Africans, the Indians, and the Chinese, and the Arabs and Portuguese who stopped over here long before the arrival of the Dutch. Slavery is also part of the history of Mauritius. The site that symbolizes it the most is the Lamorne site, classified as a UNESCO World Heritage Site. It was on this imposing mountain that runaway slaves called Maroons used to hide, and it is said that some of them preferred to jump from the top of the mountain rather than be caught. End quote. The island is surrounded by more than 150 kilometers of white sandy beaches, and the lagoons are protected from the open sea by the world's third largest coral reef which surrounds the island. Sounds like a beautiful place. Although papers would later claim Wheeler to be of Portuguese or Spanish heritage, 
He was, in fact, of British descent. Peter's father died when Peter was only eight. He was then sent to sea with his paternal uncle, Captain David Stevenson Wheeler, traveling around Europe. Eight years old seems really young to become a sailor. Um, I don't know what the lives of cabin boys were like in the 19th century, but I, I can probably think it wasn't exactly easy. Well, it's kind of context for the time, though, right? Mm -hmm. So if you think about it back then, yeah, average lifespan was about 40 years old. Yeah. So when you're eight, you're kind of like you're 16. Right, that's true. Right, and and it was a question of survival, really. I mean, if you you look back at sort of child labor in today's context, mm -hmm. and you can't understand it, but a lot of people were poor. Did you know, like, George Vancouver yes. started sailing when he was like 13 or 14 years old? Really? And he's from a wealthy family. So if you're from a poorer family, mm -hmm. you were put out to work sooner. Okay. I mean, you know, even in the 70s, you know, I bailed hay at the age of 10 years old. Yeah, I picked... Uh strawberries and mowed lawns. Yeah, so yeah. it's the context for the time, right? From the Facebook page for the Bear River Historical Society, quote, After leaving his hometown in 1877, Peter Wheeler worked on ships before arriving in Digby on the brigantine Edmund, which was on her return voyage under Captain Charles Burns and Captain Allen, both of Digby. Also on board were Howard Grant and Charles Jeffrey, both of Weymouth. Upon their arrival to Digby on October 9, 1884, Mr. Jeffrey took Peter Wheeler with him to Bear River to see his mother, where Wheeler stayed for a few weeks. End quote. Peter Wheeler, the quiet, polite, and friendly young man, decided he wanted to stay in Bear River. He claimed he was afraid of the ocean. His first job in Bear River was scrubbing floors for Charles' mother to earn his keep but soon ventured into the village looking for work as a laborer. He was not a large man, but he was willing to work as hard as he could to make up for what he lacked in size. Annie Kempton was only three years old when her father, Isaac Kempton, a lumberman, seeing Peter Wheeler's potential, was one of the first locals to hire on the newcomer. The diminutive young man with a strange accent began doing odd jobs around the Kempton family acreage on Parker Road as a farmhand. Wheeler's fellow laborers seemed to like him, especially as he could keep up with their dirty jokes and loved a good laugh. Wanting to keep his farmhands close, the farm was around a kilometer outside the village, Isaac introduced Peter Wheeler to a neighbor, a 25-year-old woman named Tilly Camo, who lived just 120 meters or so down the road. Peter moved into a tiny room just off Tilly's kitchen. Tilly had never been married but had four children, and... Having unmarried men in her home led to whispers and gossip about her assumed lack of morals by the judgmental fuddy-duddies around Bear River. Peter would live in Tilly's for the next 12 years, and some chatted in whispers that the relationship between Peter and Tilly was much more intimate than that of landlady and tenant. Of course, now, this brings to mind a large discussion we could have about small-town gossip. And I think we'll keep the larger discussion to our after show, because okay. that's sort of our planned topic. But um, you came from a small town. What was your experience living in a small town? News travels at the speed of boredom. Right, yeah. Right, yeah. so who said that? Was it Lady Bird Johnson who said, great minds discuss ideas, average minds discuss events, and small minds discuss people? Yeah. Well, if you're in a small town where there's no great ideas coming out of it or no great events, yeah, the only thing to talk about is people. That's true. Right? 
Isaac Kempton was grateful for the help that his hired hands like Peter Wheeler provided around the property in the way of chore work. But that was not the only service the young men provided, acting as trusted security for the family, as Isaac was often out of town logging deep in the woods of Nova Scotia. Isaac's wife Marianne was grateful too. She felt more secure at home with Annie, the youngest daughter of the Kempton clan, knowing the farmhands were around to take care of things. Bertha, the middle Kempton girl, was away at school in Halifax, and the oldest girl, Jessie Amelia, was now living in Boston with her husband. Annie had grown into a pleasant and well-liked teenager. Annie had lots of friends. According to folklorist Helen Crichton in her 1971 book, Folk Songs of Southern New Brunswick, quote, On a visit to Bear River in 1947, I talked with people who had known Annie Kempton. They described her as a beautiful girl, a picture of youth and health, plump, rosy, full of life, high-spirited, and innocent, yet with red hair which gave her the nickname Bricktop and the temper that supposedly goes with it, end quote. At the end of January 1896, Marianne decided to head to Boston to visit her daughter Jessie Amelia for a few days. Bertha was going along too. Annie said she wanted to stay home. Wanting to ensure the teenager was safe and stayed out of trouble, Marianne asked Tilly Camot if she'd stay with Annie on the nights when Annie did not have a friend staying over. This was the typical arrangement in these sort of situations, and it had worked out just fine before this. This was to be the plan for the night of January 27, 1896. However, when Peter Wheeler came home that night to Tilly, after around 8 p.m., he told Tilly that Annie had told him that she planned to have her friend Grace Marine spend the night with her, that Tilly didn't need to go over to the Kempton place. Tilly saw no reason to doubt Peter and went to sleep in her own bed that night. The next morning, Tilly said she needed milk, which she usually acquired from the Kempton farm. She asked Peter to walk up the road and fetch it, which he did. Only minutes later, Peter arrived back at Tilly's, out of breath and without the milk she'd asked him to retrieve. He gave a harrowing account of what he found. Annie was dead, laying in a pool of her own blood on the kitchen floor of the Kempton place. A group of local men, there were no actual police officers in the village at the time, attended to see what had happened. They found a horrific scene. The walls in two rooms awash with Annie Kempton's blood. From the state of the place and the wounds on Annie's body, it appeared that the youngster had put up a hell of a fight with her assailant. From the Montreal Star, quote, The unfortunate girl lay on the kitchen floor almost face downwards, a great pool of blood beside her. Such clothing as she wore was torn and disheveled. The skull showed marks of having been struck with some heavy article, while in the throat and neck were several wounds, severing the jugular vein. The kitchen and bedroom were in a state of wild disorder, chairs overturned, batting crumpled up, and almost every movable article displaced. On the table in the kitchen lay two bloody case knives, while the walls, table and chairs, and floors were spattered with blood. A great tussle had taken place here, a fight on Annie Kempton's part for liberty, life, honor, end quote. And we'll take a break right here. And we're back. 
Matthew, uh, what are your thoughts so far? You think with a fight like that, Mm -hmm. that the perpetrator would have marks on their body. Right. So I'm interested to know if that came out in the court case later. Not as far as I'm aware. Right, because that sounds like quite a brawl. Mm -hmm. Nova Scotia's only detective at the time, Nicholas Power, was stationed in Halifax. He received an urgent cable to make his way to Digby to help solve the murder of poor Annie Kempton. Power was every inch a Victorian-era detective, Nova Scotia's answer to Sherlock Holmes. He was tall and good-looking, standing ramrod straight. Power's piercing blue eyes were accentuated by a large, well-coiffed mustache and beard that were silver with his years of experience. Already famous for solving a number of cases, his arrival in the village was like that of a modern-day rock star. Right away, suspicion fell on Peter Wheeler. It was he who'd discovered the body, after all, and it was also he who'd told Tilly she didn't need to spend the night with Annie on the day of the murder. Grace Maureen said that she'd seen Annie on the 27th and was apparently the last person other than Annie's killer who'd seen the Kempton girl that night. Grace denied having told Annie that she would stay with her. Mm, he screwed from the beginning. Okay, how so? Even if he did it or not. Yeah. This, you know, it was a few weeks ago we did the Donnellys. Yeah. I'm just, I'm starting to think back in the 1800s in Canada, Mm -hmm. in a small town, if first out of the gate, you were considered the perpetrator. Yeah. You're going to get it. Pretty much. Yeah. 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 A coroner's inquest was called to be held swiftly with local coroner Lewis Johnstone Lovett, MD, presiding over the 12 jurors, all local men. Locals knew just how it was going to turn out before it even began. The rumors about Peter Wheeler's alleged guilt burned through the village like wildfire. Many of those who testified did what they could to cast aspersions on Wheeler's character. The press had also picked up on the murder and reporters came to the tiny village to gather information to feed to their voracious newspaper subscribers. Even before the inquest began, reporters spoke with Detective Power outside. He indicated that he was sure Peter Wheeler was guilty of Annie Kempton's murder and that the evidence and coroner's findings over the next two days would bear that out. It was Peter Wheeler who testified first. He stuck to his story of having been told by Annie that Grace Morin would be keeping her company at the Kempton home that night, that Tilly need not worry. Grace testified too, with what has been described as uncanny recall, she recounted her meeting with Annie Kempton that took place between 3.30 and 4.30 p.m. on the evening of Annie Kempton's murder. She was adamant in her denials of an offer to stay with Annie that night, but she did recall Annie having tissue paper with her, which she intended on making decorative flowers with that evening. The question on everyone's mind after Grace's testimony was, did Peter Wheeler lie to Tilly to cover up a murder he'd already committed, or planned on committing? Throughout the proceedings, as the testimony unfolded, while listening to Peter and subsequent witnesses, many of the members of the public, sure of Wheeler's guilt, hissed and jeered at him. Some men had to be physically restrained by others in the room, wanting to get at Peter Wheeler and take care of him personally. Dr. Robert Ellison, who'd been Annie's doctor all her life, had performed the autopsy on her body. He testified about his findings. The crowd gasped with every detail he gave. In her excellently researched book, The Lynching of Peter Wheeler, author Deborah Kamar noted Ellison's testimony as summarized in a Digby paper from the era. 
There was no sign of sexual assault. It appeared Annie had fought hard and was successful in fending off that kind of attack, if it, in fact, was the assailant's intent at all. Kumar wrote, quote, The doctor found five distinct wounds to the head, two blunt force defects to the scalp, and three incised wounds to the throat. The blunt injuries had torn the skin clear through to the bone. In his expert opinion, the blows to the head had stunned her, but it was the deep cuts to the throat that killed her. For the sake of thoroughness, Ellison then catalogued the other bruises and abrasions to Annie's body, each a silent testament to her last desperate minutes. Ellison, in deference to the family, avoided any gratuitously graphic details. End quote. Later unofficial verbal accounts told to Helen Crichton indicated that the wounds to Annie's throat were so vicious she'd been nearly decapitated. Ellison determined, using body temperature, lividity, and the lack of rigor mortis at the discovery of her body, that Annie had died sometime between midnight and 4 a.m. on January 28, 1896. That timing, given by Ellison, however, did not seem to hold up against the narrative being painted, that in everyone else's mind, the murder had taken place earlier, at Peter Wheeler's hands, around the supper hour. More testimony came. Grace Moran's sister said she'd seen Peter Wheeler around the Kempton farm between 5 and 6 p.m. Another man who lived nearby gave evidence that he too had seen Wheeler around the Kempton place at the same time. Bernard Parker, who'd been one of the first on the scene and appointed himself chief investigator until Digby Police and Detective Power showed up, had in the meantime, just after the crime, taken a group of men to follow tracks from the Kempton house that he claimed led to Tilly's place. Parker also claimed, unscientifically, that he was certain that the shoe prints matched those of Peter Wheeler. Wheeler's alibi was that he told Tilly he was at Stanley Rice's house that evening. But Rice, in his testimony, denied Wheeler having been at his home. There were also inconsistencies with Peter Wheeler's testimony regarding the position of Annie's body to what subsequent witnesses at the scene had observed. Others testified that Peter Wheeler had made advances toward Annie in the past and had expressed romantic interest in the girl. Perhaps the most moving of all the two dozen witnesses who testified at the inquest was that of Isaac Kempton, Annie's father. He was the last to testify at the inquest. Isaac cried as he told of the last time he'd spoken with his daughter, his arrangements with Tilly Camot to stay with her, and learning of Annie's murder while he was at the logging camp. It was during this testimony that the information came out that the Kempton's cow had gone unmilked, a task that Annie had happily and faithfully attended to every night at around 6 p.m. If, in fact, she had not milked the cow, it followed then that she had been in some way unable to fulfill her chore. This was bad for Peter Wheeler. With all this, the coroner and the jury were soon ready to give their findings. The cor in his verdict, the coroner, Dr. Lovett, wrote, quote, we do upon our oath say that Annie Kempton, between the hours of 5 o'clock in the afternoon of Monday the 27th of January and the hour of 8 o'clock in the morning of Tuesday the 28th of January, was evidently assaulted and struck on the forehead with several heavy blows and had her throat cut in several places, causing her death, and was thereby feloniously killed and murdered at her father's residence here in Bear River. And we suspect Peter Wheeler of Bear River in said county of Digby Yeoman to be guilty of the said murder of Annie Kempton, end quote. Very unusual for a coroner's report. Peter Wheeler was arrested and charged with the murder of Annie Kempton on January 29, 1896. 
He was held for trial at the Digby Jail. The Montreal Gazette newspaper wrote about the arrest, quote, The feeling against Wheeler is very bitter. Many do not hesitate to give expression to their belief that he is the murderer of Annie Campton. There is, however, a spirit of British fair play amongst the intelligent citizens of this place, and if he is innocent, he will not suffer. Detective Power arrived from Halifax and immediately proceeded to work on the case. Mrs. Kempton, mother of Annie, arrived home from Worcester, Massachusetts this afternoon. No words can describe the agony of the heartbroken parents meeting over the body of their murdered child. End quote. Yes. If he is innocent, he will not suffer. Yeah, it, that's kind of weird. Well, it, it is weird because it's sort of like a bit of a cop-out, isn't it? Because if, like, actually, hard work, right, fair trial, mm -hmm. actual science yeah. is what has to go into making sure that you're not unfairly. Right. This sort of like, oh, if you're innocent, you're going to be fine. It's sort of like the, the, in the old, the witches, right? They'd chuck them in the river, and if they came up, they're witches, and they'd be killed. And if they drowned, oh, sorry, they weren't. Right. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the, it is exactly that sort of similar thinking that if someone's innocent, well, then they'll get off. But yeah. no, we've, we've seen that we, over and over We and know over that's again. not the case. Yeah. Yeah. Annie Kempton was buried in Mount Hope Cemetery on January 31st, 1896. In her book, The Lynching of Peter Wheeler, author Deborah Kamar wrote, quote, The unenviable task of eulogizing Annie's brief life belonged to Reverend John Craig. In his tenorous tones, he declared Annie a martyr who had died in defense of her virtue. In her struggle for right, she lost her life at the hands of a human fiend, but her reward will follow in heaven, end quote. There were several racist depictions of Peter Wheeler in the newspapers between his arrest and the end of his trial, calling him Spanish and Portuguese. In one artist's rendering, Wheeler is portrayed as a black man, but the actual photos of him showed a fair-skinned man. Tilly Camo also received poor treatment in the papers, a few calling her a harlot. The scary foreigner and the harlot, those old tropes, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> it's really interesting that how the newspapers portrayed him. Yeah. You know, like, it really kind of bothered me in of a course, big way. Of course it did. The Portuguese. Like, it's not, they say he's a person of Portuguese uh, descent, which mm. he wasn't. Yeah. You know, they just assume because he has a strange accent and he was born in an island off the coast of Africa, that he is a person of color. Mm. And they paint him negatively due to that assumption, which is very, very strange. Yeah. yeah. I'm wondering which reporters are the ones who sort of perpetuated that thing, because there was no internet. And I'm sure the, the reporters at the Chicago Tribune weren't actually sitting in the room at the inquest in Bear River, Nova Scotia. They made crap up, didn't they? Yeah, exactly. And I see that a lot in these older cases, uh, cases where the facts are lost to time. Yeah. Um, a lot of them are just like, what are you talking about? <laughs> when I find out, you know, from somebody like uh, the author of The Lynching of Peter Wheeler, which is a great book, she did a lot of homework. She yeah. did a fantastic amount of homework and found out, here are the facts. But if you're somebody who's researching this case and you just use newspapers, you're going to make the same assumption that these people who were 
writing in faraway places made as the people, <laughs> you know? So not much has changed. Yeah, not much has changed. Isn't that funny how it, that works? You know, the last number of years with, you know, alternative, alternative facts. Alternative facts. Yeah, what the heck is an alternative fact anyway? <laughs> in subsequent interviews with police, Peter's story changed several times. While in jail awaiting his trial that was to take place that summer, Peter Wheeler wanted to speak with Detective Power. He now remembered something that might help his case. He claimed that he and a, quote, respectable young fellow had gone to the Kempton's house on the night of Annie's death. Peter claimed that the other young man had wanted to go inside, but Peter had thought better of it and the pair left. Peter initially refused to name the young man, but eventually Power pried it out of him. The boy's name was Harding Benson, a 15-year-old Bear River boy rumored to have been sweet on Annie Kempton. When Power talked with Benson, the boy told a different tale with a little more damning detail for Peter Wheeler. Harding admitted that they had gone up to the Kempton house and had talked about Annie being alone inside. Wheeler, Benson said, had suggested that the youngster go up to the house and spend some time with Annie. But Benson refused, saying he did not want to risk hurting Annie's reputation were anyone to find out. He then said that he and Wheeler went their separate ways, with Wheeler admonishing him to say nothing about the conversation. After Annie's body had been discovered, Wheeler again apparently told Benson not to say anything. Peter Wheeler had told Benson if he were to admit their having been at the Kempton property on the night of the murder, the police would rightly suspect them both. Benson would be the star witness for the Crown. As the trial commenced in late June 1896, papers in Canada and the U.S. followed the proceedings closely. All the evidence given against Peter was, for the most part, circumstantial. From the lynching of Peter Wheeler by Deborah Kamar, quote, The lone piece of physical evidence introduced was the short length of firewood allegedly used to knock Annie unconscious. Although weighted with sinister connotations, the actual wood as a cudgel was rather unimpressive. As Mr. Payne, Wheeler's lawyer, succinctly stated, it was, quote, not a formidable-looking weapon, end quote. The trial, of course, ended in Peter David Wheeler's conviction for the murder of Annie Campton, and, in a surprise move, he also confessed. Wheeler admitted that he'd snuck out of Tilly's house and up to the Kempton place after midnight. Wheeler claimed that Annie had let him in, but soon afterward he made his intentions known that he wanted to have Annie physically, but she rebuffed him. The fight began in Annie's bedroom, and fighting the whole time eventually made their way into the kitchen of the home. From the Montreal Daily Star, quote, The struggle, it is supposed, lasted about 20 minutes, during which time Annie strained every nerve and muscle of her strong young frame to throw off her assailant, who clung to her with dogged persistence, and at length, when the long and exhausting fight began to tell on Annie, Wheeler struck her twice across her head with a heavy piece of wood, and then she fell to the floor, insensible, and was later deliberately butchered. In one of his many confessions, Wheeler said it was doubtful at times during the struggle which would win, but by holding on to the unfortunate girl and clogging her movements rather than trying to overcome her, he was able to keep his strength for the time when Annie, becoming utterly fatigued, fell an easy victim to his murderous hands. End quote. Annie, according to many reports, died in a desperate struggle to preserve her chastity. Peter Wheeler received his sentence on July 9, 1896. As expected, he was to be hanged, and the sentence would be carried out quickly, taking place in Digby on September 8th. 
Upon his return to jail that afternoon, it was said that Peter Wheeler was jovial, smoking and laughing with his jailers. He later told the Evening Mail News that he knew he'd be convicted the moment he was arrested. Wheeler said he thought it'd be better to be hanged, as it would then be all over in a minute, and he would be in a better and happier land. He was shackled 24 hours a day with enough slack left on his chains for him to read his Bible, which he seemed to have much more interest in since his conviction and sentence. Peter's execution was scheduled for 8 a.m. on September 8th. As the date approached, the gallows was constructed behind the walls of the jail. Although the hanging would not be public, it did not stop a large group of people from Bear River to swear that not only would they witness the execution, but they would lynch Wheeler themselves before the law could do it. It was for this reason that the execution was moved up secretly. The last hours of Peter Wheeler's life were spent smoking his pipe and chatting with police officers and a Salvation Army chaplain in a room at the jail. From the Halifax Herald, quote, At one o'clock, the deputy sheriff told him he had only an hour to live. He received the news calmly and set about hanging his clothes, putting on his white shirt and black trousers in a most composed manner. Then, with Bowles and Allen, he sat down to eat supper at 1.30 a.m. and appeared to partake of the cake and tea with relish. On leaving the table, he took up his pen and resumed his writing, to which, at intervals through the day, he had been giving some attention. At two o'clock, Deputy Sheriff William Van Blarcom asked Wheeler if he was ready, but he wanted ten minutes more to finish up a letter to Tilly Camo, and the time was granted him." End quote. At 2.20 it was time, and Peter Wheeler was led to the gallows. Among the 15 people present were a doctor and the Digby coroner, also from the Halifax Herald. The place where stood the gallows was only a short distance from the door of the prisoner's cell, and was but a small room, 10 by 8 feet, built under the jail's porch. In the ceiling were two holes 6 feet apart, through which the rope passed into the porch, above where it was carried over two pulleys and 500 pounds of lead was fastened there and held in suspense six feet from the door by a means of light rope fastened to the ceiling. When the word was given, this rope would be let go and the weight falling would lift Wheeler, around whose neck the other end of the hanging rope was to be placed, two feet clear from the floor with an awful jerk. End quote. Wheeler, in his white linen shirt and black pants, was brought forward and the rope was put around his neck. He was asked if he had anything to say before the hood went over his head. He did. He said, quote, I leave the chamber of death, and I am going to my doom. I have given the Digby Courier the only true confession about the time that I killed her. What I have told in my confession is true. Friends, forgive me. I knew that I have done wrong. But if I am lying now, I am not lying unto man, but unto God. End quote. The black hood was placed over Wheeler's head, and before the trap was sprung, he was overheard saying, Lord, I'm coming. After he dropped, Peter's body twirled in midair a few turns, neck broken by the deftly placed noose. He was pronounced dead at 3.10 a.m. Deborah Kamar, author of The Lynching of Peter Wheeler, who feels Wheeler was unjustly treated and perhaps innocent of the crime, told the Chronicle Herald newspaper that her book, quote, isn't a cheap parlor trick, to use forensic science to uncover the real killer, she said. I really wanted the story to stay on Peter and what happened to Peter rather than the hunt for the O.J. Simpson real killer kind of nonsense. 
Right up until the bitter end, Wheeler genuinely trusted that the system would recognize his innocence and free him. She goes on to say, Really, what failed Peter was the emotion that was tied to the case was too strong for people to be able to see things accurately. Annie Kempton's grave is marked with her initials, A.K. Her family stone bears an inscription, erected to the memory of Annie Kempton, aged 15 years, who lost her life January 27, 1896, in her father's house in a desperate struggle to preserve her honor. The subscribers hereby express their profound respect for the departed as a heroine in her maintenance unto death of the highest virtue of a Christian civilization, the sacred honor of womanhood, end quote. If you ever go to Bear River, you can visit her on your own or as part of one of the graveyard tours that go by her plot. So there's this obsession. Yes. With honor and chastity and womanhood. There's a sainthood thing here as opposed to it's a woman just protecting herself. They've had to make it, make it into this whole women morality thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yep. Fascinating. Yeah, I don't I don't know what that's about or why that is a thing. There were elements of that in the Artist Wood case as well. Mm. Uh her uncle, for example, talked about her having uh kept her honor by fighting this guy off. Yeah, you know, and, and, and I like, swimming away. I like the idea of honor in terms of hey, you put up a good fight, but mm-hmm. but it just it like this story especially turns it into you know, the, the whole, oh, she wasn't raped. And right. the whole sexuality thing as opposed to just a human being trying to survive. Right, right. You know? And that's that's the thing that bothers me too, is is it paints women as uh, weaker somehow just by saying, well, she was able to fight him off. Like it's, yeah, you or, know, like or, it never happens yeah. kind of thing. Like, yeah, of or, course, women or, fight. Or that if she was raped, then somehow she would have been fallen right. because of that, which is the bullshit of this day and age back then, right? Right. It's just insanity. <laughs> yeah. And that's it for Dark Poutine episode 211, Murder in Bear River, The Slaying of Annie Kempton. Pretty good episode, I think. Yeah. I think we... uh covered some interesting ground there and i don't know like i i i was bashing around the idea like i've read i've read the book the lead the lynching of peter wheeler right and i've read a bunch of the other stuff and i don't know i i kind of think he did it yeah yeah i mean he did confess and people say well his confession was coerced yeah, I guess truth is we'll never know, right? Truth is we'll never know yeah. because it happened, you know, more than 120 years ago. Yeah. With the science of the day, right? Air e- quote, right? Exactly. Yeah. And that kind of thing. However, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know if he had a fair trial. I don't know if it was really fair what happened to him. No, but... But know, th- there's a difference between... Still being guilty, but not having a right. fair trial. Yeah, yeah. not guilty is not it not necessarily innocent of right. what you've done yeah. right so you know and uh, yeah i i i kind of think he did okay yeah not kind of i I'm, I'm, you think he did it yeah i i well, very it's the much confession at that. the end that sort of like well, why would he say that yeah you know because yeah. he, he was he knew he was going to die so that's right it's time for voicemails 
you can leave us a message at 1-877-327-5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. All right, let's take a listen to our first voicemail of the week. Hey, guys, this is uh, Johnny Sosa from um, Stratford, Ontario. Uh, just wanted to say, you know, your guys' podcast is the only time I ever get to, you know, sit down with my uh, beloved friend Jim, uh, the man who I share deeply uh, affection for. And we just sit and we have some nice laughs, and sometimes he puts his hand in my hand, and we really share a moment. You guys are great hosts. Your stories are great. Um, I especially love that one story about the guy with the shirt and the hat, and uh, he did that killing with that uh, person. It was a great one, you know. It uh, really opened my eyes to a lot of stuff, you know. Um, I can't really talk much about that stuff because uh, I'm going through a uh, crisis right now. Uh, well, just want to let you guys know that uh, you guys should probably take a giant steam and all the shit in your hats and um, maybe put it on afterwards and, uh, you know, have a good fucking day. Okay. Okay. Very non-specific voicemail. It was a little strange. I don't know if that guy was trolling us or what is going on, but mm. the shirt and the hat. I'm trying to figure out which one that. There was a lot of people with shirts, shirts and hats. And yeah. Anyway, thanks for your call, Johnny from Stratford. Yeah, and he sounded sincere that he's going yeah. through crisis stuff. So yeah. Hopefully, Johnny, reach out and you get the help that you need because talk to somebody. That's the best thing to do when you're not kind of not in the best place. I know it is for me. All right, let's listen to another voicemail. Hey, Mike and Matt. My name is Sydney and I'm calling from Calgary, Alberta. I have been a massive fan of the show um, since the beginning. I've listened to every single episode. Um, Can't say enough good things. I love you guys. You are the highlight of my week by far. Uh, You guys do such a great job honoring victims on your show, so I thought I would share, um, you know, maybe some good news. The show was a lot of sad news, so maybe here's some some light. Um, My partner is actually in uh, their surviving members um, that were in Zachariah and the Prophets, which, if you remember, was the band um, that two of the members were killed in the Brentwood murders, um, which is obviously just a huge tragedy um, in Calgary. But um, in the summer of last year, they opened what's called the Quintera Legacy Gardens, which looks over the Glenmore Reservoir. And it's actually an interactive music park. Um, And it's in memory of the five. And there's a stage and they do live music in the summer. And um, just behind the stage, there's five custom chairs for each victim. Um, So they always have the best seats in the house. Um, It's just been a really amazing tribute to our city and uh, to the families of um, you know, just what a tragedy the Brentwood case was, but I thought it was a really beautiful tribute and I thought I would share it with you guys. Anyways, I've debated calling in for forever, so I'm glad I did. Um, Mike and Matt, I love you guys. Uh, I'm not going to tell you to shit in your hat, but I will tell you to go poop in your toque. Uh, Take care. All the best. Thanks. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate getting updates like that. The Brentwood Five was a really tragic case. Um, of somebody who was not in their right mind and did some horrific things in Calgary. And, um, yeah, I, I just, I love hearing updates about communities rallying around, uh, the surviving members of families and, uh, the memory of victims to do things like this. 
It's really cool. Trying to do something good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I love that they have that creative element in it yeah. of music because, you know, a couple of the guys were, were musical people. So, yeah, it's pretty interesting. I like Sydney's name. Yeah? My parents had a cat named Sydney. Sydney? Yeah. Yeah. I always think of Sydney, Nova Scotia whenever I hear the, uh, the well, name They got the Sydney. cat during the opening of the, the day of the opening of the Sydney Olympics. Oh, Sydney so Olympics. So they named them Sydney. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. All right, we have one more voicemail. Let's take a listen. Uh, hi, Mike and Matthew. Um, we were just uh, thinking about your podcast and also thinking about uh, one of our friends that we had in high school uh, who actually was a victim of true crime here in Canada. Uh, her name was Joanne McKenzie, and she was uh, killed by her domestic partner, uh, McGregor. And it was actually, like, quite a big case in our area of, like, Peterborough and Lakefield. And I was thinking that it might be something that you would want to, like, look into. Um, because, like, it was, a, it was a pretty horrific story. Um, it affected a lot of people. And maybe it might be interesting uh, for the viewers to get a better look at it. Um, anyway, uh, me and my friend Sarah, we really appreciate everything you do on your podcast. It's, it's really good, and it brings uh, to light a lot of what's you know, of the dark stuff that's happening in Canada. Uh, hope you guys are well. Uh, take care. Bye. Well, there you go. I don't, I'm not aware of that case, but I'll, I'll have a look at it for sure. Yeah. I haven't heard of it either. Yeah. There's a, there's a, so many cases in Canada that get zero coverage and they, they're meaningful to somebody, you know, like well, there are. Everyone is right. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and this is why uh, I like to cover cases that are less talked about. Obviously, we'll do the larger ones too and the ones that people are aware of, but talking about cases that people may not have any information mm. on is way more interesting to me. Yeah, and I'm just, I, I kind of looked this up a little bit. It was 2011. It might, mm -hmm. might be interesting. Okay, cool. That's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one 327 5786 or one eight seven seven D A R K P T N. We'd love to hear from you, even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. I guess it's time for Patreon. Our Patreon shoutouts. First up, we have Mallory Good from Waterloo, Ontario. Mallory. Mallory from Waterloo. Mm -hmm. And what does Mallory do there in Waterloo, Ontario, Matthew? Some sort of techie thing. Some sort of techie thing. You know, Waterloo is like that big tech corridor. I don't know that. Yes, lots of lots of technology companies in the Kitchener-Waterloo area. Well, there you go. Yes. I've said it before, my cousin lives in Waterloo. Yeah. And my little nephew, or well, I guess he would be my cousin too. I call him my nephew sometimes, which is weird because he's not. But uh, my cousin Peter's son, Leo, mm -hmm. is the cutest little guy. Yeah. He is a cute and very sweet and shy Aww. little guy. Yeah, he's just a sweetheart. So love to you guys there in Waterloo. And thank you, Mallory. Uh, next, we have Amanda Dandy. Or I guess maybe she goes by Mandy Dandy. Mandy Dandy. Anyway, what does Amanda Dandy where does she live? Where does Amanda Dandy live? Pompeii. She lives in Pompeii. Oh, dear. Mm -hmm. Right under the shadow of Vesuvius. Yeah, she's a volcanologist. Well, good for her. Yeah. Yeah, lots of people... Uh, it's a place to do it. You know, poo-poo on 
volcanologist. No, they don't. I don't know why. But yeah, it's a really good place to do it. Uh, I would like to go there and see Pompeii. Uh, you know, I really liked your um, chapter on Mount St. Helen. Oh, because you've actually read my book now. <laughs> Announcement, everyone. I've actually finished Mike's book. Yeah. He read it because he got an audio book. I got an audio book. So I bought 10 books. Yeah. And the audiobook. You're <laughs> Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Next, we have from Tullaby Lake in Alberta, Lacey Maxwell. Lacey, what does Lacey do there in Tullaby Lake, Alberta? Sculptor. She's a sculptor. What does she? What's what's her medium? What does she sculpt in? Rock. She sculpts in rock. Yeah. And and what specifically does she like to do? As far as if she's sculpting something. What are we going to see? What is it that she's making us? Giant sort of creatures from... Like cryptids? Yeah. Okay, cool. Like Bigfoot and yeah, maybe uh, Ogopogo. And she likes doing wings. She's very good at like at... feathers out of stone. Oh, nice. Yeah. So the Thunderbird. Yeah. Oh, that's very cool. Next we have Stephanie Ogden. And Stephanie is from Nicholasville, Kentucky. Kentucky. Hmm. I like Kentucky Fried Chicken, but I know that has nothing to do with Kentucky. And I've never been to Kentucky. Have you? Have you ever been? No, I have not. Okay. But uh, what does Stephanie do there as a prime minister, by the way? Ooh, in thank Ken you. In Kentucky. She builds ships. She builds ships. You know, Kentucky's a big... You know, the big port in Kentucky. Is there? <laughs> I'm making I thought Kentucky I'm was stuff up. inland. <laughs> anyway, okay, so it, at the big port of Kentucky, yeah. she builds ships. She's a shipbuilder. <laughs> She's a shipbuilder. Well, that's very creative, Matthew. Next, we have Heather O'Bear. And Heather, I don't know where Heather's from. Babylon. Babylon. She's Babylonian. She's a translator. She's a... Oh, she... Like the Babelfish. Exactly. Yeah. From, well, you know uh, the story of Babylon. I do. Where they built the tower to try to go to heaven and it was struck down and everyone spoke different languages. Yeah. So if you're going to be a translator, Babylon's a place to do it. Yeah. But that stuff didn't really happen. <laughs> hey. Those are called myths. Hey. Hey is for horses. Hey. 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 Well, thank you. Oh. Well, what does Heather do there in Babel? Oh, you already said that. Anyway, sorry. Next, we have our good friend Cheryl Ditter. What? Cheryl. Cheryl from the Yumber Yard. Hello, Cheryl. Good to see you. Thank you so much. I don't know where Cheryl lives. Troy. Oh, we're we're doing very mythological places. This I'm in week. that sort of mood. You're in that sort of mood. Yeah. Yeah. Does she build Trojan horses? No. No? What does she, what does Cheryl do? She launches ships. Oh. <laughs> I thought it was Helena. Yeah. Who's, yeah. Didera. Okay, okay. So, fair enough. Well, th thank you, Cheryl, <laughs> for launching those ships in Troy. <laughs> Much appreciated. And lastly, but not leastly, we have Carrie Wagner, and Carrie is from Cranston, Rhode Island. I have been to Rhode Island. I have, have you, been. Uh, the question is, have you been to Cranston, Rhode Island? I don't know if I've Rhode been to Ireland. Cranston. <laughs> Rhode Ireland? Rhode Ireland. <laughs> no, I, I was in Providence. Okay. 
I went to a Kung Fu um, seminar in Rhode Island at... And was everybody Kung Fu fighting? We were. We did Kung Fu fight. And I pulled uh, my the inside of my thigh oh. during doing a kick. And I thought, okay, I'll put some Tiger Bomb on it. What I forgot is that if I put Tiger Bomb too closely... To your gonads? To that, yeah. And it snuck its way under my jaw. Ouch. Into uh, my nether regions. And I, I was jumping around like... Yeah, you would... Yeah, and uh, I remember one of the uh, instructors laughing at me because I did <laughs> I'd be laughing too. To be right? Honest. Look at the dum-dum. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much to our patrons. Next, let's have a look at Donut Money Donors. This week, from Regina, Saskatchewan, we have Deborah Kozusko. Thank you, Deborah. Deborah Kazusko. What does Deborah do there in Saskatchewan? She says, thoroughly enjoy your podcast. Well, we appreciate that you do. It is means a lot to us that you thoroughly enjoy it. And you took the time to send us some donor money. But what does Deborah do there in Saskatchewan? She is an airplane pilot. Oh, a pilot? Yep. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Does she fly like crop dusting aircraft? No, like the big ones for people. Oh, okay. Back and forth. Yep. Across the... Across the great land of ours. Well, there you go. Yeah. Which airline does she fly? She has her own airline. Oh, good. Yeah. There. I, I was kind of hoping that we would get there. <laughs> and and what sort of planes are they? Are Bo they like big ones? Like or? the Boeings. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Why haven't I... What's, what's the name of her airline? I haven't heard of this one. It's called... Uh, Flyway. Flyaway. Flyway. Flyway. Okay. Flyway. Okay. Flyway we Airline. We need more airlines in this country. And hopefully there is no airline named Flyway that people will now look up and we try to some, book. We need more competition. We need, well, you remember uh, Canadian Airlines? Remember yeah, that? Yeah. Uh, I used to like to fly Canadian and, uh, you know, having that level of competition for Air Canada, I think was good. But now Air Canada is just like, meh. We've got WestJet, and we have those, the smaller airlines. They, but, but they always launch, and then they go for five years, then they get swallowed up by one of the big by ones. By Air Canada or WestJet. Or WestJet. Yeah, yeah. Just to keep the prices. And it always freaks me out how, like, the prices are always within $20 exactly the same between airlines. Isn't that weird? Mm. I wonder if there's a fix going on. I was looking at going to the UK this summer. Mm -hmm. So the tickets were so expensive. What I don't understand is if I drive to Seattle, right? Yep. So I want to fly from Vancouver to London. If I drive to Seattle and then fly to Vancouver, make a stop and then to London, it's like $2,000 cheaper than just flying from Vancouver. Yeah. So so you go further and actually stop where you want to leave and it's cheaper. Yep. I don't get it. It doesn't make any sense at all. No. No. Like I would fly out of Seattle or Bellingham. Um, I don't know what we're going to do for Vegas yet, but I have a feeling we'll probably just drive across and go from, uh, yeah. Bellingham cause it's cheap, cheap. Yeah. I'm up for that. Yeah. What? You're not going to get us a private jet? <laughs> no. <laughs> Can you imagine? If I could afford a private jet, we wouldn't be imagine, chilling for patrons. No, we wouldn't need patrons. We'd be like, okay, it's all good guys. We yeah. have advertising revenue. Yeah. Well, no. We, we could like, put we could put like a massive like dark poutine on the side of the jet. You know, if I won the lottery, 
Yeah. I'm just saying, I would continue to do this show, mm. but I would do it independently. There would be no ads at all, ever. I, I would continue to do it as well. I appreciate that. That would be, uh, be kind of cool, I think. Anyway, uh, that's it. Thanks to all our patrons and donut money donors, past and present, for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening. And tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Until we return, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Goodbye. Yeah, goodbye. Until next time. Adieu. 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 To you and you and you. Guten Tag. <laughs> Was ist los, Matthew? Was ist mit der Panzer? What do, what's a panda? A, ta- a panzer, a tank. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's what one of the assistant directors on a movie I worked on said once. There was a big... Uh, I know it's the end of the show, folks, but I'm talking anyway. There was a big, um, uh, armored car and it was running right during when we were trying to, sh- to oh, shoot no. and Matthias, who was German, looked at me and he said, was ist mit der Panzer? <laughs> What's with the Panzer? <laughs> What's with the tank? Off because he, he wanted here. me to tell them to, to turn off, but like they're guys in an armored car that aren't going to listen to me. Who have guns. Why was there an armored car? Where were you? We shooting? were shooting beside a bank in the middle of the night. Ah, uh, so it was. Yeah. Okay. Bosses meet the panzer. Anyway, bye, folks. Bye.